This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. (sighs) The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center. Thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. This is Intelligence Matters with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morell. Brought to you by Lockheed Martin. Your mission is ours. Russ, is the homeland safe today from the Islamist threat? To answer that, I think you you need to hang on to a couple of competing narratives because there is a tremendous amount of good news. The caliphate was destroyed. Hundreds of al-Qaeda and ISIS leaders and plotters were eliminated. On the other hand, there's there's some news that isn't quite so good. All those al-Qaeda and ISIS branches and networks do still exist. Last month alone, we had in excess of 100 al-Qaeda attacks in the Middle East and Africa, and ISIS over 200 attacks in Southeast Asia, South Asia, Africa, and the Middle East. Can you kind of paint the landscape on domestic terrorism for us? The broad view of the community is that it's likely to get worse. I think there's the, the general concern that biases against minorities, um, perceived government overreach is going to continue to drive domestic violent extremism, radicalization, and eventually mobilization of violence. And and then we've got all the kind of newer sociopolitical developments, the the narrative surrounding election fraud and the breach of the Capitol, um, conditions related to COVID, um, and various conspiracy theories that promote violence almost certainly are going to make matters worse. Russ Travers just started a new job as President Biden's Deputy Homeland Security Advisor. Russ was the former Acting Director and Deputy Director of the National Counterterrorism Center and a career intelligence officer. We just caught up with Russ to talk about his new job, the overseas terrorist threat, and the one we face here at home. We will be right back with that discussion after a word from our exclusive sponsor, Lockheed Martin. I'm Michael Morrell, and this is Intelligence Matters. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Russ, welcome again to our show. It's great to have you back on. 
Intelligence Matters. Michael, it's great to be with you again. So, Russ, the last time you were on the show, you were serving as the deputy director of the National Counterterrorism Center. Now you're at the White House serving as President Biden's deputy homeland security advisor. We're going to spend most of our time talking about terrorism, but your remit in your new job is larger than just terrorism. And I just wanted to ask you, you know, for the sake of people who don't understand how broad that remit is, to ask you, what does your job, your new job cover? What are the issues it covers? So Dr. Liz Sherwood-Randall is the assistant to the president for Homeland Security. She's also a deputy national security advisor. And I am her deputy, as you say. Uh, the, the notion of a homeland security account could seem somewhat narrow. It's actually a very broad account. I think that's partly just a reflection of an interconnected world. Jake Sullivan, the national security advisor, often says that foreign policy is domestic policy and domestic policy is foreign policy. And that's sort of symptomatic of the Homeland Security account. It, we've got probably about a half dozen major muscle movements. Uh, we reestablished the pandemic office uh, under the Biden administration. That's to ensure that the government is, is really planning for the future so that we're better prepared next time around. Uh, that office also has a role in current COVID um, activities um, under the auspices of the overall task force, and they work the full range of biosecurity and biodefense initiatives. The second other major directorate is uh, response and resilience. The response side works with FEMA, um, hurricanes, floods, and so forth. Resilience has a, um, a longer time horizon. Uh, last year, we had, I think, the, the highest number of billion-dollar climate disasters in history. And so as we gear up for long-term climate change initiatives, we need to ensure that the current infrastructure is up to the task. And so there's a great deal of work along those lines. We've got um, border security in its broadest sense so that we work with uh, other parts of the White House and the government on southern border issues. We do asylee and refugee policy, ensuring that they kind of comport with our values. We work uh, Arctic issues with other regional components of the NSC. Um, and we've got uh, the watch listing screening and vetting architecture that has to handle something like 2 million people a day, probably the most complicated issue that I've worked in my career. We share responsibility um, for a new office that's focused on democratization and human rights, um, among other things, they work things like malign influence and so forth. And then we've got offices that deal with the more traditional homeland accounts. So transnational organized crime kills far more Americans than terrorism ever will. We stood up a, a, a domestic violent extremism office because that simply wasn't getting enough attention. And then as you say, the account that probably people are most familiar with, which is the international terrorism account, and that's been a mainstay since 9-11. I guess the, the key point I would make to all of these is that um, our role is, is really to keep bad things from happening, uh, demonstrating competence along the way, I hope. It's not geopolitical chess. It's really a great deal of blocking and tackling how to ensure that the government works together in the best interests of the American public. That's a lot of stuff. So, Russ, we are coming up on the 20th anniversary of 9-11 in just a few months, and I'd love for you 
just take a moment to reflect on that a bit and tell us what comes to mind when you think about the 20th anniversary. Yeah, uh, we are just under five months away. Uh, 20 years ago, the plot was really well underway. There had been that infamous meeting in Kuala Lumpur. By now, the hijackers were in the country. They had their visas. They'd been through their flight training. And so we were in the the closing months before the attack. Um, Reflections for me, uh, this is almost a generation ago between Americans that uh, were not yet born or those that were too young to remember 9-11's got no context for almost a third of our population. And for people like you and me, it's amongst the most traumatic experiences, I think, of our lives. It worries me a bit that memories are fading. In in my case, I was posted overseas at the time. I got called home. And so I was flying back and forth across the Atlantic before taking a new job and moving my family home. I actually wrote goodbye letters to my kids because we just, as a country, we didn't know what was coming or how bad this was going to be. If you had told me then that we could fast forward 20 years without having seen another attack on the scale of 9-11, I think I would have taken that in a heartbeat. The key point, though, is that success didn't just happen. There was a lot of plotting that got stopped. In my opinion, the counterterrorism architecture is the single best example we've got of whole of government. And we saw a consensus that developed um, across Republican and Democratic administrations that we had to do a series of things. We had to carry the fight overseas. We had to push borders out. We had to defend the homeland. We had to share information and work with partners and all that, all that really important kind of activity. And that consensus lasted for really a decade and a half. I started to get a little worried towards the end of the the latter part of the last administration because we were hearing things like ISIS is defeated, or we just need to kill a few more people and Al-Qaeda will be gone, or on the other extreme, that maybe terrorism was worse then than it was before 9-11. None of those, in my view, were correct. We were certainly someplace in the middle. But I guess I hope that over the next four or five months, there will be a lot of commentary A lot of looks back at what we did right, what we did wrong. Uh, We need to think about our risk equation, I think, going forward, because these are really important issues. Russ, perhaps this is a good place to transition to the current threat itself. How has the Islamist threat changed over the years, and and where are we today? Well, 20 years ago, um, we were looking primarily at a threat that emanated from a little piece of real estate along the Afghan-Pak border. And after the attacks, we took a great deal of operational pressure directed against that al-Qaeda leadership, um, forcing them to, to modify posture tactics. Uh, frankly, they made a bit of a virtue out of necessity, opting for a bit of a, a franchise model uh, that would develop really over years. Al-Qaeda in the Islamic Maghreb in North Africa or Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula in Yemen, uh, what would eventually become Shabab in East Africa, and Al-Qaeda in Iraq. Generally, um, each one of these franchises were led by people who was close to bin Laden in Afghanistan. Uh, Al-Qaeda in Iraq in particular would split from AQ, become ISIS, um, and eventually declare a caliphate in 2014. 
They held that for five years until uh, the massive global coalition led by the United States um, eliminated the caliphate. It was during that time that ISIS also created branches and networks really around the globe, Far East, Africa, Middle East, quite small, often, um, built around pre-existing insurgencies. And at the same time, we had the phenomena of homegrown violent extremism. So lone actors in the United States that would radicalize largely on the internet and conduct attacks. So you've got this entire array. You've got centrally directed attacks. You've got enabled attacks. You've got inspired attacks, all of which we needed to deal. And then you had kind of second and third order issues that complicated the problem. We would see prison radicalization, or we saw foreign fighters that would flock to the caliphate and then disperse around the globe. Uh, Right now, we've got a a massive displacement camp in northeast Syria, something called Al-Hal, which is a kind of a breeding ground for future radicalization. And then we've got Hezbollah and all the Shia militia groups in Iraq. So really several years ago, we started referring to the threat as diverse and diffuse. I think that is a completely accurate characterization. It has been really now for a number of years. It does mean that we've got a very broad but very different threat landscape than we had 20 years ago. Russ, is the homeland safe today from the Islamist threat? To answer that, I think you you need to hang on to a couple of competing narratives because there is a tremendous amount of good news as a result of that that consensus I talked about. The caliphate was destroyed. Hundreds of al-Qaeda and ISIS leaders and plotters were eliminated. We degraded a great deal of the propaganda infrastructure. We've cut into funding. uh, And we're doing all the smart things, sharing information, working with partners. So there's been lots of success And I think that's been manifested in the fact that we haven't seen an attack against the homeland in a long time. And we have to go back to Paris and Brussels to see any major attacks in Europe. On the other hand, there's there's some news that isn't quite so good. All those Al-Qaeda and ISIS branches and networks do still exist. Uh, Last month alone, we had in excess of 100 al-Qaeda attacks in the Middle East and Africa, and ISIS over 200 attacks in Southeast Asia, South Asia, Africa, and the Middle East. And we see coordination between and amongst these branches and affiliates. So they are both playing a bit of a long game here. And they are both um, enabled by the downsized globalization. So things like um, encrypted communications that makes it really hard for, for us to understand what's going on. Um, we, the, the, the change in UAV use over the last five or six years from low-level surveillance to being able to weaponize them, um, increasing uh, uh, counterfeit passports and identification cards. Uh, so they are um, innovative users of technology, and that's a challenge for us. And so for me, when I, when I think about the risk calculus, I, I tend to look at things in three levels um, beyond core ISIS, core Al-Qaeda. You've got local insurgencies. They've been around forever. They are primarily focused on local conditions, not an immediate threat to our interests. The next step up is when these insurgencies, um, there's ISIS emissary outreach, and they further radicalize them such that we may see threats to U.S. and allied interests. So maybe kidnapping of U.S. persons or threatening of embassies or threatening of private sector interests, which is exactly what we saw a couple of weeks ago 
with ISIS Mozambique. This was a low-level insurgency, but they were able to mount a multi-prong attack against the city of Palma, took it over for a while, um, and their actions over the last really year, but going back several years, um, has adversely impacted on tens of billions of dollars of liquid, liquefied natural gas investments uh, off the coast of Mozambique. And then there's a third level, which is these radicalized insurgent efforts that wrap their flag, ISIS flag around themselves when they can reach out and touch the United States. Being able to assess where we are on that spectrum is a challenge for us. And we, ha we haven't always done it right. In 2009, we thought of AQAP as being largely a regional threat. And yet it was able to, um, Umar Farouk was able to get on Northwest Flight 253 and try to blow up his underwear over Detroit on Christmas Day. The following year, Faisal Shahzad tries to blow a, a car up in Times Square. He was trained by the Pakistani Taliban, also thought of as a regional actor. And more recently, we have um, a Shabab operative, Cholo Abdullah, took flight training in the Philippines. We don't know what the target was, but according to the indictment, he was researching U.S. visas in tall buildings in the United States. This was somebody on nobody's radar. And so it highlights just how challenging it is to be an intelligence analyst when we're focused on this very diverse, very diffuse um, threat that's people and networks hard to detect, enabled by the downsides of globalization. Russ, a couple more questions about the Islamist threat before we move to the domestic threat here at home. Not only are we coming up on the 20th anniversary of 9-11, but we're also coming up on the 10th anniversary of the operation to bring Osama bin Laden to justice. And I'm wondering, I know this is not an easy question, but I'm wondering what you think bin Laden, if he were still alive, might think about what he started so many years ago. How would he feel about the movement, do you think? Well, um, to the extent that these guys have all taken the long view, uh, his perspective 20 years ago was that of uh, a small piece of real estate on, in the federally administered tribal areas in Afghanistan. And now we see uh, an ISIS that is in 20-odd locations around the globe, all of the Al-Qaeda affiliates that were started are still there. I think he probably would like to have seen a closer relationship between ISIS and Al-Qaeda. In many places around the globe, they are in conflict with one another. But I have to believe that the, the trend for him, albeit with some setbacks to be sure, has been in the right direction. We're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsor, then we'll be right back with more of a discussion with Russ Travers. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Russ, let's shift the conversation to talk about 
domestic terrorism. It's come to the fore over the last few years and was certainly punctuated by January 6th. The IC just released an assessment that warned, quote, of an elevated threat from domestic violent extremism. Can you kind of paint the landscape on domestic terrorism for us? What is this all about? How do you think about it? Sure. Um, Remember, terrorism is, by definition, politically motivated violence directed against noncombatants. the, the Bureau has a sort of a broad array of the, the way they talk about domestic politically motivated violence. Um, the, the biggest category is probably what they would refer to as racially or ethnically motivated violent extremists, what they refer to as REMV. Um, there's also a host of kind of anti-government, anti-authority violent extremists. So these would be militias and anarchists and so forth. Um, we've had animal rights, environmental violent extremism around for a long time, as we've had, we had um, abortion-related violent extremists as well. If you looked at a Venn diagram, um, you would see some overlap between and amongst many of these. Uh, and the phenomena has been around forever. It ebbs and flows depending on societal conditions at the time. Um, there was so-called left-wing extremist violence in the 60s and 70s, we would see a half dozen pipe bombs a day blowing up when when you and I were in middle school, partially related to Vietnam, to be sure. Um, And there still is some left-wing violence, as President Biden has said, completely unacceptable. But by any objective standard, the the vast majority of the text that we've seen over the last few years has fallen into really two categories, either what the Bureau calls racially, ethnically motivated violent extremism, principally white supremacist, or in the past year, it's been more militia violence is what we've primarily seen. Again, not new, long sorted history. Uh, White supremacist violence was worse in the 20s than it is now, but it was really Charlottesville that that brought it front and center a few years ago. your audience will have heard President Biden talk about the, this and the impact it had on him. Uh, in, in my case, my two kids attended UVA, uh, one just starting and one just finishing when the uh, Unite the Right um, protests and, and violence uh, occurred down in Charlottesville. And that was really a wake-up call for a lot of people. It increased in 2018, kind of um, in, in 2019 was the, the worst year for this form of violence since Oklahoma City. 2020 was more militia-oriented, um, the alleged plot to kidnap uh, the governor of Michigan. And then we, of course, saw all the violence associated with the breach of the Capitol on January 6th. And as you say, unfortunately, um, the broad view of the community is that it's likely to get worse. Um, I think there's the, the general concern that biases against minorities, um, perceived government overreach is going to continue to drive domestic violent extremism, radicalization, and eventually mobilization of violence. And, and then we've got all the kind of newer socio-political developments, the, the narrative surrounding election fraud and the breach of the Capitol, um, conditions related to COVID, um, and various conspiracy theories that promote violence almost certainly are going to make matters worse. So, Russ, we, we seem to be having difficulty struggling a bit, I say, coming to grips with how to address this threat. Why 
is that? What is it about this threat that makes it so challenging? Yeah, it is, it is a pretty complex phenomena. And the, the very nature of the threat is it's, it's different in that it's not as much group-oriented as is the case with ISIS and al-Qaeda. Um, the, the phrase leaderless resistance is used, and that harkens back to 1960s anti-communist doctrine. It was a, a phrase that was picked up by a, a KKK guy as a strategy for white nationalists to fight against the government. There's actually an analog in Islamist terrorism. It's kind of the leaderless jihad thing, homegrown bomb extremism. But it's it's a simple fact that most of all of the mass casualty attacks over the last several years have been conducted by individuals with no affiliation to any group or movement. And the movement itself is it's really amorphous. There's not a lot of structure, hierarchy. Um, some of these quote unquote groups only exist on the internet. They come and go, they will disappear and reappear under a different name. Frankly, the, the, the leaders don't like one another very much. So you see lots of squabbling and fracturing and they don't have a, a coherent ideology. Uh, that's what we see in the case of the Boogaloo movement, for instance. Um, there's another complexity in that uh, the legal framework is very different. There's, there is no domestic terrorism statute. There's a definition, but there's no federal charge, though there are state charges that can be brought. Um, and so as a result, there's no mechanism for designations of groups, quote unquote, in the United States. And even, even designations of overseas analogs of domestic terrorism groups um, as foreign terrorist organizations is really challenging because of the legal regime. And that gets really to the third complexity, I think, which is, um, I think we would all agree that ideally we want to prevent domestic extremist violence before it happens. Law enforcement does a, a fabulous job of investigating violence after the fact, but the question is, can you get kind of left of boom and now it gets really challenging because first and foremost, um, we absolutely need to operate within the constraints of constitutionally protected speech. Probably implies that we need to have a closer partnership with the social media companies because they have to be part of the answer. They've done a much better job, I think, working with the government on Islamist terrorism over the last few years. In part, that was easier because ISIS and Al-Qaeda are designated foreign terrorist organizations. But it gets harder with domestic violent extremism. It gets questions of kind of terms of service. At what point does abhorrent conspiracy-laden speech get pulled down? Because um, we know Americans are being influenced by this stuff. So the question, I think, is how do we get our arms around an effective um, prevention program? We're getting increasingly confident with the research that shows that a substantial majority of the tax, somebody knew something. Research would tell us that 60 or 70 percent of homegrown violent extremist attacks, somebody had relevant information. Might be a relative, might be a friend, might be a soccer coach, but somebody knew. So that would suggest there's a role for, for call centers here. We do have DHS grant programs that are focused on targeted violence and terrorism prevention. At the same time, um, there is a campaign promise to ensure that we looked hard at what worked and what doesn't work and that the programs are being executed in accordance with values. So we need to do all that. 
But I think the key point for me, I think, is that these programs can work. I mean, we've got, um, just last week, the, the Secret Service put out a report not about ideologically motivated violence, but about school shootings. And their conclusion was, looking back over like 15 years, I think, that vigilant community members stopped something like 67 school shootings because they, they saw something of concern and they reported it. So the real key here is building of trust between community and law enforcement. So Russ, the IC assessment that I referenced earlier said that a small number of domestic extremists have traveled abroad to, quote, network with like-minded individuals, unquote. And we know from other media reports about communications between some domestic extremists here and folks overseas. So what can you tell us about the international dimension of this problem and how much we should worry about that? Yeah, and that adds a really an additional layer of complexity to this problem. But we talk about domestic violent extremism or some domestic terrorism, but aspects of this really are, it's almost a variant of international terrorism. And in particular, one segment of the racially and ethnically motivated violent extremist category. There's something of a global movement going on here um, amongst those who are kind of convinced of the superiority of the white race. It's not just the United States. Um, We see many of the same demographic issues, societal pressures. You will hear sometimes um, reference to, quote unquote, the great replacement theory. And that's that's a, a a French book that came out a decade ago, a very dystopian, xenophobic view of the, of the white race and the pressure that it's under. And we've seen violence conducted with this justification of sufficient concern that many of our partners in Europe and Australia and New Zealand have, have put right-wing violence or terrorism on a par with Islamist terrorism. Well, we've seen attacks in the UK and Germany killing politicians who took pro-immigration stances, uh, obviously the mass killings at the mosque in Christchurch a couple years ago, and, and many others. And the linkages you talk about, those, there's a lot of transnational influence, to be sure. Um, manifestos and, and demonstrations of influence will often trace back to Anders Breivik, who conducted the attack in Norway 10 years ago. And the Norwegian, along with uh, an American and a Canadian then influenced Brenton Tarrant, who conducted the Christchurch attack. Tarrant, in turn, um, influenced a bunch of American attacks, as well as that by a German, and influenced a Singaporean kid who wanted to conduct another Christchurch attack-like attack, but but was um, preempted. So there's a tremendous amount of cross-pollination between and amongst these individuals. And those manifestos share... um, tactics, techniques, procedures. Beyond that, as you suggest, there's some limited interaction. After the fact, it was determined that that Tarrant had um, both been in contact with and provided money to identitarians in Europe. We have seen individuals in the United States being encouraged to conduct an attack by an overseas sort of quasi-group. We've seen some travel abroad for training. We've seen some cross-border outreach. But in general, it's mostly this notion of leaderless resistance. 
which is a massive challenge for the intelligence law enforcement community. I thought New Zealand did a, a really good job um, uh, looking at the, the full array of issues after Christchurch. They put out like a 900-page document that acknowledged mistakes, to be sure, but basically concluded at the end of the day they couldn't have prevented the attack. And so th that's like, pretty challenging for those of us in the law enforcement intelligence community. There's a, maybe a last couple international issues um, in Europe in particular. Uh, we're seeing some very blurry distinctions between um, extremist groups and political parties, and that poses a challenge. And we're also seeing uh, the presence of violent extremists in the police and the military. The Germans in particular have, have been investigating many hundreds of military and police for extremism in the ranks, even forcing them to eliminate some units in the military. And obviously, um, Secretary Austin has taken that on as a major issue within the Defense Department. So, Rush, you mentioned that some countries are putting this new kind of domestic extremism on the same level, the same par as Islamic terrorism. Do you? Well, I think um, in terms of uh, just cases, the last time I testified with Chris Ray was probably 18 months ago or so. He talked about uh, roughly equivalent, I think, 850 domestic terrorism cases at the time, roughly 1,000 homegrown violent extremism cases at the time. Uh, when he testified a couple of months ago, he said that domestic terrorism investigations were now, I think, at 2,000. So it is a substantially increased concern. Um, and uh, whether you put one above the other, they are both um, of significant concern to the entire counterterrorism community. Russ, you and I have talked a lot about the resources dedicated to terrorism. And obviously, you know this is better, better than anyone, the tremendous amount of resources that have been expended over the last 20 years on the Islamist threat. Yet at the same time, right, today we have so many needs, right, from recovering from COVID to revitalizing our economy to dealing with the Russians to China's rise to the domestic terrorist threat. So how do you think about resource allocation in the terrorism world? How do you think about that? I think it's going to be one of the key national security questions uh, for the next four or five years. Um, I was actually... Um, supportive when, when former Secretary Mattis, basically when he put out his military strategy in the beginning of 2018, said that uh, we, we need to elevate uh, great powers in, in Iran and North Korea relative to, to terrorism. Uh, we, up to that point, terrorism had been unequivocally number one. And we built a huge architecture, a huge enterprise uh, that um, did, as I said, extraordinary work, I think. Uh, okay, so now we have a, a far more complicated um, global national security environment, and uh, terrorism has been paying bills now for, for several years. We just need to ensure that um, we do this rationally. And the kind of lessons learned from CT, how do we ensure that we maintain an integrated national security posture um, that is almost certainly going to get smaller we are going to move collection resources away from CT to support other national security threats. I think that's perfectly appropriate, but I also think that we need to have a very candid conversation about risk. And um, invariably, if we know less about a problem, we are accepting some additional degree of risk. 
and it just needs to be done with open eyes. As um, it's, it's a difficult proposition in terms of comparing, contrasting the risk posed by country X or Y or function X or Y against terrorism. But that's the kind of work that I think that we're going to have to do to ensure that I, the prime directive for me is that we don't go back to um, uh, some of the, the maladies that affected us before 9-11. Russ, we're running out of time, and I'd love to ask you one more question and love to flip back to the Islamist threat for a moment. This all started in Afghanistan, as you know. And so I'm just wondering, and, and I'm not asking you to forecast policy here at all, but I'm just wondering what's your view of what happens to Al-Qaeda in Afghanistan and Pakistan in a world in which the coalition is no longer in Afghanistan? How do you think about that? Well, the, the, the premise assumes that a, a decision has been made. It yes, hasn't. Yes, yes. Um, the, uh, I think uh, everyone agrees that um, a negotiated agreement, political agreement, is the only way that uh, Afghanistan is brought to a successful conclusion. Um, I think the president has said uh, that it would obviously be very difficult for us to depart by 1 May, um, but that he doesn't envision forces on the ground in the next year. Um, However that plays out, uh, there is, uh, as you suggest, a small al-Qaeda and kind of a diffuse ISIS um, force in Afghanistan. And uh, the, the... sort of a prime directive for our community will be to ensure that Afghanistan itself doesn't become a launching pad for attacks against the United States going forward. You guys are focused on making sure that that doesn't happen. That's what we do. Russ, thank you. Thank you very much for joining us. It has been an honor to have you back on the show and it's great to talk to you again. Thanks very much, Michael. It's a pleasure to be with you. That was Russ Travers. I'm Michael Morrell. Please join us next week for another episode of Intelligence Matters. Intelligence Matters is sponsored by Lockheed Martin. Your mission is ours. This show is produced by Olivia Gassis, Jamie Benson, Jake Rosen, Paulina Smolinski, and Ashley Armstrong. For more from this week's show, visit cbsnews.com. Intelligence Matters is a production of CBS Audio. I'm CBS News correspondent Major Garrett, host of the podcast Agent of Betrayal, The Double Life of Robert Hansen. During the Cold War, FBI agent Robert Hansen traded classified secrets to the Kremlin in exchange for cash and jewels. In the podcast, you'll hear from Hansen's closest friends, family members, victims, and colleagues for the most comprehensive telling of who Robert Hansen really was. Binge the entire series now. Agent of Betrayal, The Double Life of Robert Hansen is available on the Wondery app, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts.